Hello, and welcome to episode 76 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people that create it. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view show notes, including episode cover art, at our home on the web, cognitech.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Craig Andera. All right, this week I want to mention to you a couple of things going on in the Closure universe, and I also want to emphasize, as usual, that these are not Cognitech official events, only uh, to make sure that no one thinks we're trying to take credit for these things, which are done by wonderful people out there in the Closure universe. The two things I want to mention this week are a pair of uh, Closure Bridge events. As you may know from listening to the show, Closure Bridge is a wonderful organization that is aimed at helping people uh, learn programming skills, specifically through learning Closure. I'm probably horrifically mangling their mission, mission statement, so you should go to closurebridge.org and find out how they put it. But uh, the two events I want to mention are there's a Closure Bridge happening in London, April 17th and 18th. And on the same uh, dates, there's a, also a Closure Bridge happening in Portland, Oregon, here in the U.S. By the way, I'd like to call out that uh, these things do have sponsors. Obviously, there's work involved in putting these on, and the sponsors do make a big difference. So the London uh, Closure Bridge is sponsored by Biopawa, U-Switch, and Yeller. And the Portland one is sponsored by Lispcast, Puppet Labs, and Simple. Uh, and again, these aren't Cognitech events, so I just personally would like to call out those organizations and thank them for their support of Closer Bridge, which is a, which is a great organization. So, um, you know, if you happen to be in either of those areas, check it out. And if you're not, um, you should still go to closurebridge.org and uh, see if there's a way that you can contribute or just find out more about it and maybe point people you know that maybe could benefit from what Closure Bridge is doing to the organization. I think that's all we're going to do for announcements this week. We will now go on to episode 76 of the Cognicast. So are you ready to start? Yep, I'm ready. Cool. All right. Well, then we will go ahead and begin. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Today is Friday, February 27th in 2015, and this is the Cognicast. And we are pleased, pleased, pleased today to have as our guest an artist, a programmer, and I will I will mention a, a graduate of my, um, of my alma mater, MIT as well. Turns out we were... We even, my wife actually lived in the same dorm as our, our guest did today, although they weren't there at the same time. I'm talking, of course, about Isolu Greenberg. Welcome to the show. Hi, Craig. Thank you. Uh, well, we're super glad to have you. We always start, and I think today's question might be um, even more appropriate than usual for you, having looked, as, as I mentioned, you are, you, you are an, I don't know how you, if you'd characterize yourself as an artist. People have different visualizations, but certainly having looked at some of the things you've done, I would call you one. And uh, we'd like to have people share an experience uh, of art of some kind. Um, and you, when we were talking before the show, have decided to share with us a little bit about a piece of art that you've created. So I'll let you talk about that. It's a painting that I finished not too long ago, just a couple of months, but it took me several months to make. And um, I'm especially proud of it. It's a triptych of a landscape, uh, imaginary landscape, where the main components are the rocks sticking out of the water and then the crepuscular rays which are the rays you see usually at dawn at dusk um it's the sun rays coming down when you can actually see the outline of rays and 
the reason I wanted to make it is because I was very inspired by seeing crepuscular rays and like I thought they looked so mysterious and so beautiful and I wanted to capture that in my painting. Uh, yeah, it's a really striking painting. We'll put a link in the show notes. People can go and 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 look at that. You know, it's it's very. I mean, I'm gonna. It's always a little bit intimidating to describe a piece of art to the person that created it. <laughs> but but um, when I look at it, I'm just really struck by the. You know, you've really captured the aspect of the light because it's a very dark painting in terms of the scenery. Right. But then you've got this light coming down through it. Those, as you said, the is it crepuscular? Is that the right word? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the that's the technical scientific term for it. <laughs> yeah, those rays that you see, like it's the very kind of. I guess it can have a lot of different types of emotional content. It can look ominous or it can look inspiring. Or but those rays that kind of shoot down through the clouds. Uh, it's a very, very cool piece of work. And I noticed on that page that you work in a variety of different media, I mean, including um, you've done sculpture, you've done some jewelry, it looks like you've worked with silver. That's quite, a, quite an array of materials. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I actually just recently started working with enamel paints and acrylics as well. First, just experimenting to try to get a feel for different mediums. But I like art. I like creating art and I like exploring different mediums and seeing what I can do. How can you use them to express, you know, the next idea? And honestly, to me, it's very similar to learning a new programming language because there's, you know, that period where you, you're trying to get a sense of how it behaves and um, there is, you know, some period of frustration or unfamiliarity with it because it just behaves very differently from everything that you're used to. And then once you get a hang of it, you can really, you know, bend it and twist it to do exactly what you want. And it's a very rewarding experience. So uh, most recently, I've been doing a lot of oils for maybe like two and a half years now. And now I feel like I can, you know, make them look like watercolors or make them look like gouache and get many different visual effects from the oil paints. And previously, when I was just learning, it was just, you know, very unfamiliar feeling and very much reminds me of, you know, learning new programming languages and trying to get a sense of what is the computational framework, what is the idiomatic way to do this to express your ideas. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I just recently rewatched Tim Ewald's talk from the Closure Cons from the year before last, the one titled uh, Programming with Hand Tools that some people might have seen. I, I don't know if you got a chance to catch it, but he makes the same comparison between a programming language and the materials um, that you work with when you create something. In his case, he was talking about wood, of course, but it sounds like <laughs> oh, cool. you've found the same analogy to hold uh, in other media. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. That's cool. Yeah, I, I should check that out. I ch should check that talk out. That sounds really cool. I really enjoyed it. I think it was it was one of the highlights of that particular conjun and and, a, and one of the best talks I've ever. I've known Tim for a long time. He was one of the <laughs> best talks I've ever seen him give, which is I I think saying a lot because he's an, an excellent speaker. That's awesome. But, but I, I'm curious. So you know, you you <laughs> you brought up programming, and of course, we like to talk about programming a lot on this show. So I, I guess there's one library in particular that I want to discuss with you, but maybe let's get to that in a minute because. I, I just started to wonder, what would you say that your, maybe you don't have one, but if you have one, would, what would you say your primary programming language is, the material, if you will, with which you are most familiar right now? Hmm. So, well, for my full-time job, which is, you know, like however 40 plus hours, uh, I write C++ professionally, but then Clojure is, you know, my hobby, my passions project language. And... Um, not writing at full time definitely, you know, limits my ability to express my ideas even better in the language. But I have found that I was able to 
get to write the programs and get them to the point I want, you know, projects much easier with closure. There was, you know, some emotional aesthetic appeal in it that the program that you wrote was, you know, so succinct and it did exactly what you thought it did and what you needed it to do. Whereas, you know, right now with a lot of C++ I'm writing, it's not always entirely clear and it requires my, uh, a lot of mastery of many different concepts to get the program to do what you want it to do. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've written a little tiny bit of C++ recently myself, although it's been um for the Arduino and uh uh-huh. Oh cool. Yeah, it, it's it's been fun, but it of course, you know, it's been years and years and years since I wrote much C++. One of the things that strikes me about C++ is that it actually does have a lot of capabilities for abstraction. Like, I mean, that's one of the things I like about Clojure is that many, many mechanisms for abstraction, they compose very well. Mm-hmm. And when I went back to C++, I was reminded that to some degree you have many of the same things. Is that, and yet somehow you wind up with a different feel. Has that been your experience as well? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. It's a very powerful language. There are, you know, downsides of having powerful tool available to you in that, you know, many different people will use it different ways. Luckily, in my company at Google, we have a restricted subset of C++, so it makes it easier to understand other people's implementations because there are fewer ways to express the same thing. And, um, you know, so you kind of avoid that mental gymnastics you have to do to understand how that person is trying to describe the same thing, but using different parts of the language. Yeah, that's a, that's a, um, that's an observation that I've heard other people make as well. And I think there's something to it, which is that the power of restriction, if you will, is, is that there's something there. I, I wonder, cause I'm still really fascinated by the, by your work as an artist as well. Is there something similar that you do when you're working with different media in an artistic sense where you, I mean, because it's a little different. You're not, you're not necessarily working with other people's stuff, but do you mm-hmm. find that you have value in imposing restrictions when you're, say, painting a painting? Yes. So, well, I would say the tools that you use are definitely restrictive. So like, at some point I learned how to use a pellet knife. And before I started using it, I, um, you know, my thoughts were, palette knives are not for painting, they're for, you know, mixing the colors and mm-hmm. mixing the paints and getting the color you want. But a lot of artists use palette knives to get more structural representations of objects. And so expanding my my toolkit, I guess, to using palette knives allowed, um, restricted me in some ways because I couldn't get some of like, you know, the finer uh, melding of colors. But at the same time, it allowed me to do things I wouldn't be able to do with paintbrushes. I know that some artists prefer to stick to very particular tools, whereas others want to use whatever. In um, So I've done some like electronic music composition, and um, the thing that attracted me there was that the whole world was my orchestra. And um, unlike, you know, just composing for a particular instrument and but I do know that a lot of electronic music composers, they prefer to stick to a very narrow subset of what they can achieve with sounds and then just take that to the maximum that they can. So I think it's more of a personal preference for a lot of artists. I definitely prefer to expand my toolkit and use as many different tools and as many different techniques as I can learn. Hmm. So I guess it's, you know, the opposite of restricting the language or like restricting the 
capabilities of a given language. Sure. Now, I mean, I, I could see that analogy too. I mean, we, you know, there may be value in restriction in some senses, but at the same time, one of the things that we like about languages is uh, can often be that it lets us do more things. And I think that's the the perhaps tenuous analogy, but analogy nonetheless of, to what you're talking about. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, so you mentioned you work at Google. Well, what do you what do you do for Google? Uh, so I work on a distributed build system currently. It's you know our users are other Google engineers who are globally distributed. So there are a lot of concerns for you know same concerns for any distributed systems: fault tolerance and reliability and replication and a lot of concerns for what happens if a natural disaster happens in say Europe, um, how do we make sure that our developers stay productive by rerouting their traffic, their builds to another data center that was not affected by it. There's also a lot of interesting challenges with getting build incrementality. So because so many Google developers are building the same thing, well, they're building for different projects, but they're relying on many same libraries. It's very fascinating how you can take advantage of some of the common structure. Um, you know, if you already compiled a base library for one of the projects, trying to take advantage of that and not have to redo the work and try to share as much as possible of the previously done work. Uh, that's interesting. So that's I haven't worked in that space before, and certainly not at the <laughs> scale that I think Google is operating at. But is there anything to be... The thing that reminds me of is persistent data structures, right? I mean, this idea mm -hmm. of do something, remember that you did it, and then refer to it rather than redo it. Is that right. is there anything to what I'm saying, or am I just making stuff up? No, no, no. That's exactly it, right? Yeah, exactly. So you know, you build something, and then you want to reuse that because it's the same subpart of another build. So why not reuse it instead of rebuilding it? And also, there is another big challenge with trying to build a hermetic and repeatable builds. So like if you build the same projects without any changes, you would expect that they're the same, but due to challenges of distributed systems, they may not be. So making sure that they're the same and your builds are repeatable and, you know, one shows you a compiler warning, another one doesn't, or one compiles a binary of a particular size, another one is, you know, twice as large. That's not something the user expects, but that's something that can happen in a complex system. So, so there's um, a lot of unexpected challenges that I did not know existed until I started working on it. And um, it's very, very cool and very interesting. I'm, I'm curious, like, what does the system look like? You know, what are you using? What are some, what are some cool, you know, we have, we got, we got pretty nerdy audience. Like what's the, you know, mm -hmm. let's, let's talk about some of the details. It sounds like a really, I mean, I love that sort of thing is, you know, big giant system. Oh yeah, I remember right. what I was going to say too, which is um, you talked about repeatability. When I mm -hmm. was working at Microsoft and mm -hmm. was working on Visual Studio, which is a huge, huge project. I mean, 50 million lines of code or something ridiculous. The build system there, they actually checked in the compiler. Like it was part of the, the source for the build was all of the tools you were going to use to build the thing. Right, uh, right. And I think that's mm -hmm. the, the sort of, that just reminded me of that. But anyway, I'm curious to hear more about the guts to the extent that, that it's interesting and that you can tell us. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. Well, a lot of it is internal Google infrastructure, which is, you know, has been really incredible and really fun to work with. So, you know, the, some of like, you know, the databases you may have heard of, like Bigtable and 
one of the challenges actually of uh, working, uh, well, starting to work at Google was that I was before, you know, pretty active using a lot, uh, pretty active in the open source world, using a lot of open source technologies and, uh, and then coming here and like learning a whole new different tool set, which is similar, you know, it's so same problems, we still have same problems to solve, but the way they're solved are ever so slightly different. And, you know, just like learning the names of tools, learning what their APIs are, has been an interesting learning experience. A lot of the um, things that we use for implementation are just, you know, very much like internal things. So I'm not sure they'll be recognizable to most people, but um, we write it in C++. A lot of infrastructure is written in C++. That's cool. No, I, I had the same experience at Microsoft, which is, you know, like we could talk about the, uh, the build tools and they're moderately interesting. But as you say, a lot of that stuff is kind of internal. It's cool, but it's just right. custom built for one company, albeit a very large one. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's also, you know, like the devils and the details. So all the like specifics of implementations are very interesting because of the challenges that other tools impose. And, you know, it becomes not so much the challenge of building a distributed build system, but more of, you know, making different components talk to each other in a way that is reliable, that they can, you know, tolerate um, failures and tolerate random data corruption and so on. So, mm-hmm. So the systems that the that your the system you're working on are building is this all C plus plus or is there a mixture of languages uh, that you're supporting? So for our clients, uh, we support multiple languages. So we have a, a, a an easy framework to you know write a code in this language that looks more like C, and then it just um, compiles to you know Python, Java, C plus plus, what have you. It's it's an interesting language in that. It's very difficult and translation to different languages with, you know, their own idioms is not an easy problem. So often writing this shared language that will be compiled to many different languages is a challenge on its own. And it's not as as well documented as many other languages, not as familiar as many other languages. So uh, it's a fun challenge. (laughs) Cool. And are you working on the language design as well or or is your responsibilities another area? Uh, my responsibility is mostly in the, you know, the distributed part of the build system itself. Sure. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a system like that. That's uh, I have to imagine there's quite a few people working on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a big effort. And, um, you know, it's like because it's such an important part of infrastructure, you know, if people can't build, then they can't get their work done. They can't release. And right. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's kind of important. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that you use Clojure for your, as you said, passion projects. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you'd mind... I mean, I'm aware of one of them, which is Loom, but and we, we can definitely, in fact, I want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just wondering what, what what are the other things that you have going on, whether it's in Clojure or anything else? Uh, yeah, definitely. So, well, a while ago, like maybe a year ago, I wrote Bitcask implementation at Clojure, which is, uh, you know, some of you may recognize it from uh, React. That's the database engine for React or one of the database engines for React. So it, it was, um, I wrote it with David Greenberg and it was just, you know, a fun challenge to implements this, you know, very elegant idea of how Bitcask works with like a lot structured, uh, like structured uh, tree. Um, it's a for a key value store. And um, it's been mostly Loom that I'm working on for open source for my passion project. Yeah, Loom's really interesting. So I, I'll, I'll let you describe it. But I've actually played with it more than a little bit. It's good. Let's go, well, I'll let you let people know you gave a talk on, on Loom 
was it at? It was at Strange Loop, right? Uh, it was Closure West. Closure West, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's good. People should definitely check that out. But uh, maybe you can go ahead and describe for people what Loom is. Sure. Yeah. So Loom is a graph algorithms and visualization library. One of the common questions I get is, so can it store graphs? Well, it does not do that. So it's not meant to be a graph database. There are many excellent graph databases out there. But what it has, it has the very easy to extend representations of graphs as such that you can actually represent your graph data in the graph database to Loom to be able to run graph algorithms on it. And then it has an integration with the dot, the graph is, to be able to visualize the graph and um, have it printed out and um, for verification purposes. Yeah, so this is pretty cool, actually. I mean, what you've what you've done is um, you've got I don't know a, a few different aspects. I mean, that kind of at the very center of it is, as you said, there's a representation for graphs, which is primarily um, a small handful of protocols, closure protocols, mm -hmm. um, and then you can implement those over whatever you want. And I actually spent a little bit of time looking at what it would take to implement those over Datomic. Oh, cool. And um, it looks like it maps pretty cleanly, actually. Oh, good. That's it's good it's none too difficult to do. It, I mean, at a, at a guess, and you know, this is always nonsense, but at a guess, I think it's about 50 lines of code to, to say, oh, wow. oh, now you've got, mm -hmm. oh, so no, well, so why would you want to do that? Of course, the answer is because one of the other big things that you did, in addition to defining the abstractions, is to then go and hit, go ahead and implement a whole bunch of graph algorithms against any implementation of, of that graph protocol. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. So the idea behind you know, Loom was that it has a very sane, very minimal protocols to represent graphs. And, um, you know, just graph representation is such an interesting problem. I've had uh, many discussions with people who, you know, have done this professionally or for their thesis and graphs are very fascinating to a lot of people and um, there are often we end up talking about different ways we could have represented it but I think the advantage of Loom is that it presents it, it represents it in a way that most people will hopefully find intuitive it's very very minimal it doesn't make any assumptions about the structure of your graph and you the graph data owner should be able to map however you represented it into Loom so I did something uh, for myself just to test out this product, uh, these protocols, and I implemented the Titanium to Loom library. And it was, as you said, it was just like under 50 lines of code, and it was um, pretty easy to map it. And then, you know, the advantage you get is that now you can run graph algorithms on your data with minimal effort. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, so Titanium is a, that's a, I think it's a closure wrapper around... The Titan DB, yes. Titan DB, right. So, yeah, that, and that's a graph database. One of the things that I found a little surprising, because I actually looked at the, the atomic implementation more than just for five minutes. Like, it was actually a fairly serious think about it for a while. And mm -hmm. one of the things that was interesting to me was that, so there's a bunch of different ways you could handle that mapping. Uh, mm -hmm. One would be, you know, like, build a graph model in Datomic, because Datomic has a very flexible schema. And mm -hmm. you could say, well, I'm going to define you know, an attribute that says, that talks about, or a set of attributes that talk about nodes, and I'm mm -hmm. going to define a set of attributes that talk about edges. Or, um, because Datomic has uh, what are called ref attributes, which is how you relate entities in the database to each other, kind of natively, mm -hmm. um, you could just say, well, look, I'm just going to pick one of these existing attributes in the database that's a ref, and say, mm -hmm. that defines my graph. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Now, the thing that was interesting to me about it is if you do that, what it means is that edges are not reified in the database, right? Like there's no mm -hmm. entity in the database that represents a particular edge that connects two nodes. Uh, it was really interesting to me. I mean, I feel like it's a real uh, success on your part that I was able to adapt that representation, even though there, as you say, there's obviously differences in the way that you, that people could choose to represent a graph concretely with reified mm -hmm. edges or reified nodes or whatever. Yeah, definitely. Well, I should, um, you know, credit where it's due. The library was actually started by Justin Kramer. And um, then, you know, I picked it up from there as he moved to other projects. So, you know, a lot of the work of like, you know, setting down like very reasonable protocols, a lot of that work was done by him. And then I liked it. Like, I liked that simplicity. I liked that it did not make any assumptions and did not impose anything onto the author. So there are changes I made to the protocols now to just, you know, separate having like, you know, functional graphs be functional where points of mutation are very explicitly. So like when you add edges or add nodes, those are very explicit and those are separated from, you know, just the getting a snapshot on the graph, getting the snapshot on the representation. Yeah, separating read and write is something I'm sure you've come across this as well in your work, but when right. I do distributed systems, I see it over and over again that to the, to the degree that we can make read and write kind of not be part of the same thing, it, it right. seems to be one of those things that generally wins. Is that, have you noticed the same thing? Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, I feel like my, you know, experiences with closure and you know, exploring more of its philosophy influences a lot of my C++ code because I've gotten, well, I wouldn't say I'm, um, you know, I'm not writing functional C++, even though, you know, there are many ways to do it because it's such a powerful and flexible language, but just separating the, you know, where the mutation happens, making that very explicit and having programs be more of, you know, value passing, it's more about the data flow and structuring them as such, I think has made my code clearer, made my reasoning about the code uh, clearer to me and it seems to other people as well. So uh, it's interesting how a lot of the ideas that I took from, you know, functional programming and closure are helping some of the, you know, more object-oriented procedural programming as well. That's fascinating to me because I had almost the reverse experience that you... you know, oh, really? Yeah, you say that other people have reacted positively when I, and, and maybe this is just, you're better at it than I am. In fact, I'm sure that's the case. Cause when I was first learning closure, it affected the language I was using at the time, C++ or C sharp. <laughs> um, and I started writing much more functional style mm. C sharp. Now that largely at the time meant I was making very heavy use of link, uh, the language integrated query, which is sort of a map filter reduced type set of functionality that built into C sharp. <laughs> and, and people okay. complained. They said, dude, your C sharp is weird. <laughs> and I said, maybe weird, but it's better. And they disagreed. Yeah. So uh, that's really cool to hear that, that you've been able to take the things that you learned from closure and apply them in a way that even people that haven't had that exposure have seen as beneficial. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it, you know, it's working, walking a fine line, right? So like I, prior to write, starting to write C++ at Google, I was actually a full-time Java developer and doing that for, for some time. And I have seen some people, you know, get excited about functional programming and bringing that to Java and then writing things that like, you know, take many more lines of code and are much harder to read to those who have been doing Java. And, you know, obviously they were not as open to accepting that kind of <laughs> code or like that kind of uh, implementation. Mm. So knowing where it's appropriate, not is, you know, takes a lot of thinking and effort. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, that's always the hard part, right? Is the people right. parts of coding. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Also interesting, you know, for that same reason, because it's just like another dimension of difficulty, like another constraint that you have. So work, working around it is, is um, it's a fun challenge. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I love your attitude and I think you're absolutely right. Would you mind, so I hope that people would not mind indulging me a little bit. Uh, and this might be a short conversation. Did, so were you computer science at MIT? Uh, yes, yes, I was. Yeah. So, what is the curriculum like there these days? Because I wonder—I mean, we're separated by, you know, years uh, at the at the school, and I wasn't CSI anyway. Uh -huh. um, so, you, you said you were a Java programmer. I assume you mean after graduation, that was your first professional language. What was the curriculum like at MIT in terms of languages employed, or any any just like what was it like? Uh -huh. Sure. Yeah. So you, you probably when you did it, they had like the scheme, right? As the introductory class, like the yes, um, yeah, yes. This, okay. Yeah. So they moved away from that. Now it's Python, and then the software engineering class is actually in Java, and and then from there it's um you know it's what you choose. So the compiler that I wrote while in school was because my, most people knew Java. They wrote it in Java, but my team actually wrote it in Groovy, mm. um, which was actually my first exposure to higher order functions and moving away from object-oriented, purely object-oriented programming into you know something that had like some functional elements to it. And um, a lot of curriculum. Well, so I did the electrical engineering computer science, which is slightly different than the computer science or electrical engineering. It's just like in a joint. Six two, right? Yes, six two. So yes. my wife was six two. Oh, okay, cool. Anyway, yes. sorry, nobody, no, no, like no. two people in the audience are going to know what that means. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Did you do 6-3 or? I was 6-1-A, so. 6-1-A. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, so. <laughs> wow, all right, yeah, inside baseball, they're big time. Anyway, please continue, please continue. So, like, the reason I decided to major in this particular thing, you know, like the joint electrical engineering and computer science is because I've always been fascinated by so many different layers of abstraction. So I wanted to uh, learn as much as I could about every single layer. So, you know, from like the gate level, right? And like building up a processor from like the, you know, gates and then building up like the end XOR blocks and then putting that into the ALU, like the arithmetic, can't remember what the abbreviation Logic stands for. unit, I think, yeah. Yes, right. And then, you know, building off of that and like, you know, creating like, you know, multi-stage pipeline processor just from those little building blocks. And now you have the processor and then building on top of that, the, you know, so like you have the assembly and on top of that, you know, so whatever code generator, uh, whatever code was generated, usually, you know, x86 assembly is what I was exposed to. And then from that, you know, what programming language generates it for you? It could be lower level like C or higher level like, you know, Groovy generating that. And then, you know, on top of that, all these abstractions with, you know, good software engineering design patterns and you know good practices of creating different abstractions such that you know the boundaries are very clear between different components and there is and then on top of that building you know like the bigger architecture of how different components fit into the larger scheme so that all was very fascinating to me so i wanted to get view from sort of you know both sides like the hardware and the software side and it was really fun that is super cool. I, I got to ask you at this point. So it seems like you've done basically everything. I mean, I, I love, I love, I mean, I kind of got into double E for somewhat the same reason, mm -hmm. which is I wanted to be able to, to penetrate down through the, I mean, software is really where my brain is, but I wanted, I did a double E intentionally so that I could understand what was going on. But nice. 
more mm-hmm. broadly than that, it, it seems like you, I mean, I really, this really comes back to like what you're saying. When, when you use a medium, you want to use all of its capabilities. You seem <laughs> almost to take that approach to life. Like you're doing all these paintings, you're, you're into every aspect of computer programming all the way down to the hardware. Is that something that you pursue intentionally? Like do you look around and go, what haven't I done yet? And then is that something you do consciously to have such a wide variety of, of interests? Or is that just some, just you just follow what interests you already have and it falls out that way? Um, yes, I would say it's just that I look, well, I find just world fascinating. It's full of so many different things and I want to learn about them. And I want to, you know, experience them. Like I learn, I wonder about the, the mechanics of it, right? Like how does it work? How does, you know, if somebody wants to do art, how do they go about structuring their workload such that they get the results they want? And how does, how does everything around me works? How do people make things, you know, the, the way they do? And um, I find that all fascinating. So whenever I get an opportunity to learn about that, I was just, you know, as long as I have the energy, <laughs> I would probably jump into that. <laughs> yeah, I might have to ask you where you get that too. But I actually want to ask you about, you mentioned the word, uh, I think process. You said, you said, I forget the exact word, but you said something that reminds me of a question that I wish I, I would ask more guests because we have such fascinating people on that get so much done that I should ask them more often the question I'm about to ask you, which is how do you approach, do you have like a general workflow or approach that you use? You're like, I'm going to learn how to, I don't know, maybe you're going to become a blacksmith now. Maybe you already are, you know, like how would you, okay, well, but regardless, you have some new skill. Is there some set, set of kind of standard techniques that you apply when you're, when you're learning or working that help you be more productive and and get what you want to out of that experience? Well, some of it is, uh, you know, the times have to be favorable. Like I learn best from being around people who already know about it. Like I learn best from people. Um, You know, of course I do some of like, you know, the study on my own and, you know, reading up on it before I um, seek out where to do it. But um, for other things, it's also that, um, do, um, I found that if I there's a lot of overlap in seemingly unrelated fields, you may have heard like my theory is that you may have heard of like you know like in order to become an expert in something you need to spend like ten thousand hours doing it and then you become the expert. Have you heard that? Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So like I found that like you can hack like first like n hours like I don't know if it's like hundred or like fifty you know depending what it is by having done other things mm. because you can find interesting mappings between them where now something that would have taken you longer to learn uh, no longer does because you're able to find some of the parallels and then use previous skills and previous knowledge from other fields and apply that. So like, you know, in um, painting and programming, right? It's like in programming, I like structuring your work such that, so, you know, our system is big. So there's a lot of communication across the teams, a lot of making sure everybody's on the same page and you don't get blocked or you do get blocked while doing something else. And uh, same, you know, with painting, like structuring your work, there's a lot of different effects you can get from, you know, painting wet on wet or painting wet on dry. So like what I mean by that is, you know, painting, like taking the paint, fresh paint and applying that on top of already put fresh paint or letting it dry for a weekend and then applying fresh paint. And that gives you very different effects. So anticipating those and structuring your your day, the hours that you spend on it, such that you don't have to be blocked or you can accomplish as much as you can 
while you're working, you know, a lot of like planning skills become helpful in a different field. Mm-hmm. So the one thing that helps me. And another thing I find that it's very interesting in that like the way I like to take breaks is by doing something else that I haven't done before. <laughs> and um, that allows me like, you know, to take a break. Like by the end of like second hour, I'm usually pretty mentally exhausted from painting. <laughs> and, you know, which is surprising because most people don't think about it as being like, you know, mental exercise. But it certainly is to me. It, it's very much similar to, you know, like solving math or physics problems. Some artists may be very, very critical of the statements, but like, you know, it's like, I think of it as like, you know, ray tracing and like, how does the light hit this given this obstacle and this obstacle, you know, like solving math and physics problems, like as you paint, you know, like at some point you get tired. So then I would switch to do something else. And that helps me like do many different things while letting myself rest from the previous thing. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it's it's a fascinating answer. I I don't think the question was precise enough to say that it has an answer. Um, (laughs) It's definitely interesting. I'm given to wonder, you know, you said you do different things. Is it important that, like, how do you know that the the thing is different enough? I feel like the important thing is you've got one has different areas of one's brain and you have to employ, you know, like, it's not like if I'm coding along in Clojure and I need a break from that, I can then go code code in Clojure script. And that, that doesn't seem like it would be particularly, maybe it would actually, but it, you know, I could feel like those things are closer together than, say, I was painting and now I'm going to go do, I don't know, like read a book or something, like study mm-hmm. study a language, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, do, do you, is that something that you consciously take it into account is whether it's sufficiently different to provide that change or you just kind of know? Sometimes and sometimes, well, usually it's just, oh, this is something that I'm interested in learning about or this is something I'm interested in practicing. And then, like, to me, programming is very much, you know, creative effort, creative process. Mm. So then it's it doesn't feel that different from painting, yet it's like, you know, maybe painting is like more diff- of like different manual work than uh, programming would be. But then I feel like some parts of like, you know, me thinking about like the structure of program and some like the more architectural things are not necessarily on, you know, top of my mind sort of. Mm-hmm. So that helps push it back. But I don't really actively seek out, you know, oh, well, the, you know, maybe I'll try to touch on different parts of art or different aspects of living, you know, like doing like archery or something, you know, which is it feels like a very different exercise or like different activity to do. Mm-hmm. Do you are you actually doing archery too? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not as <laughs> awesome. not as much as I would like um, because of you know New York space constraints is sure. very difficult. Right. But, um, so like you know on and off when I when I get the free time, but um, you know it's it's fun. <laughs> that's super cool. Uh, no, that's great. So I, I just got to ask you what 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 what's the rest of the hobby list look like? You're gonna <laughs> like usually we got archery, painting, sculpture. Programming. Um, what else? Uh, let's see. So I compose music. Um, oh, that's, you and, said that. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, I play piano and then I'm um, also a dancer. I've been dancing uh, since I was five. Okay. Wow. Oh, that's yeah. been a long time. So, uh, so like I did um, ballroom dance for like a decade and a half, I think. And then it, it, actually in college, I choreographed um, belly dance. The, I don't know if dance troupe existed. I don't know either. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot going on there, but I'm right. not yeah, sure. Yeah, there was a lot of different interest groups. So, uh, yeah, so like I choreographed a dance, uh, like belly dance there. And um, yeah, that's um, that's 
pretty much it. You know, like <laughs> a lot of photos. <laughs> that's awesome. No, that's yeah. fantastic. Really, really cool. I just, I, I'm, I'm just highly impressed by people. So this is a word that I feel like I don't actually know what it precisely means. I wonder if anybody's ever applied this to you. Polymath. Is it, is it a, a term that people have said that you, I, I feel like that's the, I'm probably using it wrong. Um, hmm. I've heard of polymath. Is that like ability to do many different things in many different areas? Yeah, I think so. You know what? I'm I'm an ignoramus. I'm not sure. A person of wide ranging knowledge or learning would be the uh, the, the description I just googled on and got off of Wikipedia. So. Oh, okay, okay. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> you're you're now the you're now in the in the dictionary in my mind where it says polymath. Your picture is next to it. That's very um, awesome. So I actually would like to turn back for a minute, if we could, to sure. to your experience of closure, because I don't I don't feel mm -hmm. like we got that's you know something a lot of people in our audience are interested in, and uh, I don't feel mm -hmm. like we could drill into it very much. I and, and I'm interested especially because. Of of your obvious, you know, just like the way you attack so many different skills. I'm interested to hear a little bit about your story of how you came to Clojure and your experience of, of learning it. For instance, was Loom the first thing you did in Clojure or the first significant thing? Uh, yes. So it was the first significant thing. So, it, you know, I got intrigued by Clojure when I was writing Java and um, I've wanted to learn a Lisp and, you know, because, you know, Unfortunately, I skipped the scheme that I could have gotten right. during maybe my school times. And uh, so Clojure just, um, I spent some time first reading just through a lot of Clojure code. And I felt like I understood it. I felt like I knew what the program was trying to achieve before even, you know, knowing much of the Clojure. And then I did the uh, foreclosure exercises mm -hmm. to like get a sense and, you know, just like browse around Clojure docs and figure out what is out there available to me if I wanted to operate on collections and like, you know, let it sink in, in my head, you know, this other way of representing computation. And then I started uh, looking around for open source projects I could get involved in and graphs and graph algorithms have always been interesting to me, especially because I've been doing some, you know, compiler work and like researching compilers and like uh, there's, you know, a lot of, you, you represent programs as graphs, right? Like the program mm -hmm. flow as mm -hmm. graphs. So so I wanted to do more of that. And then I came across Loom, which was, you know, as I mentioned, started by Justin Kramer. And I would have started my own probably closure library for doing graphs, but Loom was already so, you know, well documented, well designed. I really liked the approach that Justin took that. And at that point he's moved on to other projects. So um, it seemed like, you know, I could just pick it up and keep working on it, which I've really enjoyed. And uh, you said that's been the main thing you've been working on. Um, do you have any, are there any kind of interesting future points for Loom or you're just implementing interesting algorithms that come along or, is there, or are there bigger plans? There are some things that um, I've had in my mind for some time now. I'm, you know, in this like hammock mode right now, like considering different implementations and talking to people. The two things I would like to do is I would like to have Loom ability uh, to have Loom to be able to represent tension and contraction of nodes. So you know, subgraphs because in compilers it's very useful. You know, when you have like basic blocks, right? Like you have a program execution and then anything that uh, a basic block would be after the conditional and before it jumps elsewhere, a sequence of extraction that are executed uh, serially. So there, you know, you would contract the node to represent one basic block and then there are different optimizations you can run just on basic blocks versus, you know, across the basic blocks. So it seems like a very powerful abstraction that graphs should have in order to be useful to many different fields. So I've been um, thinking a lot about how I would like to 
implement that given you know the current uh, their current setup, the current um, implementation. And then another thing I would like to do is have ability to debug algorithms, so like visualize them and like see the flow, because right now it's you know you could see like the input graph and then the output graph, but what happened in between is very obscure. That um, I think being able to see the algorithm flow would be helpful in implementing even more graphs and or finding bugs in implementations, and I would like to do that. And then have been a lot of wonderful contributors doing work in performance, um, improving performance of the uh, of Loom's algorithms. Um, so Mark Engelberg added this amazing feature, Multigraphs, support for Multigraphs, which actually fits so seamlessly into existing implementation. I was uh, very impressed and very pleased. So what's a Multigraph? A Multigraph is uh, when you may have many edges between two nodes. Mm. So, you know, it's very helpful in, say, games, right, representing, like, pathfinding, but, like, different edges have different costs to get from city A to city B, and uh, choosing the one that, you know, fits your needs, it's useful for that. Gotcha, mm-hmm. gotcha. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. So it, that's been my that's been taking up most of my time and also maintaining it. So there'll be you know very very smart people coming up with very good ideas for how to improve the current representation or how to you know make it go faster. And at this point, I feel like one of my big responsibilities is making sure that it's backwards compatible for those who are already using it, so that they have you know. So they're not just, you know, jumping from one representation to another and just breaks for them. A lot of research communities have told me that they're using it and, you know, they, everyone, all of us are very busy people. So making sure that they can, you know, get maximum benefit out of it without inflicting too much pain on them, uh, too much pain off, you know, refactoring or restructuring their work, I think is like a big responsibility that I have and I would like to do a good job on that. Sure. Yeah, and that involves one of the hardest parts of being an open source maintainer, which is saying no. Right. Yeah. Yes, and uh, or you know, saying well, no, not yet, but then you know, taking those good ideas and figuring out ways to make sure that those ideas see light. Maybe you know, in not not in particular that implementation, but in another way that doesn't break it for other people. Well, um, we we do have we do have as much time as we need to take, but I feel like uh, I've I've already kept you for quite a while, so I want to make sure that we leave time here to talk about anything else that you'd like to to bring up today. If I, if we've if we've missed anything, is there anything else that we should discuss? I think we'll have to have you back. It's clear that you never stop working on interesting things, so we'll Thanks. wait till you pile up a couple more and then <laughs> I would love pick to your brain. No, it'd be, we'd really love it too. But you know, we still have time this time to talk about anything else that you think uh, we should cover today. Um, sure. Well, I guess most recently, I've been having a lot of conversations about performance. So uh, I don't know if you have seen the talk. I spoke on um, benchmarking uh, yes. at Strangelope. Yes, I did go to your talk, actually. Yep. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So um, so I've been having a lot of conversations prior to the talk. And then I, I gave another version of the talk at Recon, which is a distributed systems conference. And, you know, like in between the talks, even now, I'm having a lot of conversations uh, with people about performance about you know setting up correct benchmarks and um, it's a very fascinating topic to me because it's a very much multidisciplinary field like in order to write good benchmarks you need to have like a fair amount of knowledge in many different like levels of abstractions that we talked about it's fascinating to me because 
it's very difficult to acquire that knowledge in the first place. It's, you know, it takes a lot of very focused efforts. But it's interesting how I've been collaborating a lot, of, for instance, with statisticians to, conf- uh, to, you know, verify with them that a certain way to interpret results is a reasonable way. And so at work, I... Um, Prior to working on distributed build system, I set up a um, performance analysis pipeline for the search engine. So like, you know, like for like the search infrastructure. And there I got to do a lot of, you know, benchmarking work and like a lot of performance work and analysis of results of performance and having a lot of conversations with low level experts and statistics experts and, um, it's really, really cool, and it's really, really complex. And I've been just really enjoying having these conversations with people. And it's also um, so another set of conversations that I've been having is, um, you know, like micro benchmarks, right? Like a, a lot of us like to set up micro benchmarks so we could move on with writing well-performing code. And I'm actually I've been a an industry mentor for the MIT class. It's the performance engineering class, 6172, if anyone knows that <laughs> number. <laughs> so so like there, it was interesting in that the students were ranked against each other um, depending on how fast their program runs. But the job of an industry mentor was to teach them good software engineering skills. So teach them about, you know, refactoring and maintainability and creating designs that make sense. Mm. So at the beginning of semester, it was I was observing a lot of mismatch in expectations and the advice that industry mentors were providing. And uh, because, you know, like. People were very students were really excited to pull out, you know, like the fancy tricks up the sleeves with, you know, like kernel optimizations. Well, not really kernel optimizations, but like, you know, like the low level, like C assembly optimizations. Mm-hmm. And as the semester went on and as we continued discussing how we could have refactored their code to be, you know, cleaner, better design, they started seeing that having cleaner and better design enables them to do a lot more optimizations if they first focus on, you know, just maintainability of the project. That was an interesting thing that I've observed where, you know, they would come to me and tell me, oh, well, I was able to do this thing only because I structured the code to be so well readable right. that other of my teammates could suggest improvements instead of, you know, doing some like low level bit hacks. And then nobody really knew what any program is supposed to do. And you just don't touch it because <laughs> because it works now. Yeah. So I've actually done a, a fair. I mean, I've never done tackled a problem like Google search engine, but I've certainly done some optimization optimization work. And, mm-hmm. and I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I think that what you find out after a while is that the thing that you're really trying to optimize, I mean, we focus a lot on CPU cycles, and even that's mm-hmm. not the only technical thing because memory plays into it, etc. But right. the thing, yeah, all sorts of stuff, right? Like the, the mm-hmm. thing that you're really trying to optimize is cost, right? Mm-hmm. Where that's, that's essentially impossible to quantify, but mm-hmm. includes things like, am I achieving the business objective by making this program go fast enough? But mm-hmm. Am I, as you say, enabling people who come after to continue to work on this code? You know, mm-hmm. that has a cost as well. I mean, because ultimately in business, it, it's, about, it's about money and, and not even money at a single point in time. Because if you have to spend $10 million right now that you don't have to make mm-hmm. $100 million over 10 years, well, you, you can't do it. So it's very right. complex, but I always think of it as, as cost. And it's just, it's engineers, yeah. we, including me, at least, I'm not speaking for you, but certainly I have a really hard time making myself 
not just say this should be faster because it should be faster. Right, right, exactly. And like code tends to outlive, you know, most of us on like in that particular role in that particular team. And I'm I'm sure you've worked with many different legacy code bases, right? And well, we say heritage. Heritage. Yeah, no, that, that sounds better. It's a nicer name, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's like, you know, like Brooklyn, like an artisanal heritage. That's type right. thing. <laughs> this code is very artisanal. Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And um, also, you know, like who is going to benefit from those improvements? Like, did you make an improvement to the code, like, you know, like to your pet project, like, you know, pet side of your project? And it's great that you did. And like, you know, it def- like, there's like definitely a lot to learn from that. But how does the business benefit? Like understanding like the business side of the practical side of it, being a professional software engineer, I have the responsibility of producing value you know, through my code, through my work, through my experiences, you know, doing performance engineering, but I can't spend time tuning something if it doesn't yield benefits across the board. So it's an interesting thing. And it's also like, you know, in classes, like in school, the projects you create, you know, they have like lifetime of, you know, at most a semester, right? So like it's very different time scale that you work on afterwards where it's years, decades, hopefully. Right, right. (laughs) Hopefully you don't rewrite everything, you know, every two years. (laughs) Well, who doesn't really? But (laughs) no, no, yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. It's, you know, just like managing and juggling the different aspects of software engineering, but like, you know, definitely taking into account like the clients and the, um, the business aspect of it. Like I'm, I'm not really, you know, involved in a lot of like, you know, dollar sales type of conversations, but we work together towards, you know, goal of, you know, making sure that we continue getting paid and producing value. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you have a manager who's, who's watching out for those things and providing the appropriate pressure on you when, when those goals aren't being aimed at. So it's, it's there, right? Yeah, I mean, one thing is, you know, like having somebody who like can guide you through that. Another thing is being like understanding the value of that, like being sold on that. So it becomes less of, well, you should do this because you were told so, like you should do this because it makes sense. But like versus I understand this is the point. So let's work towards this common goal together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, that is amazing. So cool. I, I don't know. Sorry. I'm just like... (laughs) <laughs> it's just neat to talk to uh, another uh, another alum, although, <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, I'm just very impressed by you, is what I'm trying to say. Um, okay. So, uh, so it, I mean, any anything else that we should we talk about today or save a few things for next time? Well, I'm sure you'll do more. Um, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, well, actually, well, one thing I, yeah. uh, you know, since I'm doing closure as, you know, like more of a hobby thing that... I've been noticing from, it's like, I enjoy, I really enjoy interacting with the closure community. I really enjoy the people that, you know, the closure community includes and attracts. And I noticed that there are so many of us in the community that have diverse interests, right? Like, so, you know, mm-hmm. you, I, I've heard about, you know, some of your interests that you have and everybody I meet at like, you know, closure conj or closure West has another thing that they do, another thing that they're passionate about. And I really, really like that. It's, you know, very, I guess it recharges me with more energy and enthusiasm mm-hmm. <laughs> to continue working. And another thing I really like about the closure community, um, I don't know if you have the same perception or not, but I noticed that a lot of people are more open to working with, uh, research or like using the computer science research advancements and integrating them back into their day-to-day you know professional software development 
Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I can point to a number of concrete things mm -hmm. uh, that I think are evidence of that. Uh, one is just the number of times I've heard somebody say, oh, uh, you should read this paper is right. inf infinitely more than I ever heard when I was in the, the main, more in the mainstream. So right. there's that. And then if you look at the relationship between the closure community and some of the other, well, particularly like the, the stuff going on at IU, but not just there because there's University of Utah as well. You know, we've mm -hmm. had Matthew Flatt on the podcast. We've had uh, Will Bird on the podcast. Mm -hmm. But it, it goes well beyond that. There's, there's lots of interaction. I mean, uh, they had uh, RacketCon co-located with Strangeloop. And right. although Racket is also a commercially viable language, um, it's definitely the case that there are strong, strong ties to the programming uh, research, programming language research community is in, in, in Racket as well. So, you know, I just think there's a lot of stuff, uh, there's a lot of things that back up exactly what you're saying, which is that there's more, more of an interest in and a respect for the academic um, side of our profession. Right, right, definitely. I, I don't know if there are um, papers for love chapters near where you live, but... Um, yes. Yes, there is. Okay, yeah. yeah, cool. So, like, there's one in New York, and, like, you know, it's very active, and I love that community. Like, I was so inspired by it that I started our internal, like, at Google Papers for Love. Oh, cool. Thing. And, um, yeah, it's really fun because, you know, we have a lot of researchers in the office, but it tends to be that, you know, like, if you're working on speech problems, then uh, they would discuss, you know, papers related to speech. So it's been really fun to, like, bring them together and talk about other topics of, you know, computer science and just learn about them, like, some things that I have much less idea about, like, you know, some of, like, you know, program analysis and, like, lambda calculus papers and um, learning about them, like, you know, having experts in their field come talk about what they do and get exposure to other ideas, other frameworks has been really, really cool through that particular community. And I think there is a lot of closure people active in that community too, which is cool. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's a, yeah, there's papers. There's a lot of people should definitely check out papers we love and see if there's one nearby them. And if there isn't, they should start one because yes. it is a really wonderful idea. And I know yes. that there's a pretty active community in at least a couple places. I know for sure New York, as you said, there's one here in DC. <laughs> I know there's some elsewhere as well. And I, I'm not heavily involved, but I'm Fairly certain I've seen go by on Twitter the fact that if you're looking for support to start a chapter, that there there is support from the other the other chapters to do that. So it's a, it's a great idea. Yeah, definitely. It's, well, it's a very cool idea. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, I, I I think I think we should go ahead and jump into the advice. It's it's very clear that I could keep pulling interesting things out of your brain for the next like 12 hours, but we're gonna we're gonna let people out of their cars, out of their driveways, and go go into their house now. Um, so, uh, so of course, we always end the show. We ask our guests to share a piece of advice either they've received, that they like to give, or that they just overheard, and uh, share it with our audience. So what would you like to share with our audience? Uh, sure. Well, it would probably be the advice that I follow myself. And uh, as opposed to, you know, do as I say, not as I do, I actually follow this uh, my own <laughs> advice. <laughs> so um, just doing, main, um, doing things in seemingly unrelated uh, fields, I think can help uh, one to become better at the, you know, field of like their profession. So, you know, my uh, observation is that in order to become a better engineer, me putting 100 hours more into it wouldn't have made me a better engineer compared to if I put 100 hours into doing other things, either it's, you know, reading research papers or doing unrelated things, you know, studying more of biology or something like reading more of other things like even reading books I think all of those things give many different 
frameworks to think in, such that when when one is you know stuck solving a problem, it allows to think outside of the box by making the parallels, making certain making connections that wouldn't be apparent if um, there wasn't an exposure to a whole different field. Mm-hmm. And I think it you know helps. I wouldn't say cut corners, but it helps, you know, get out of the um, barrier when there's nothing else in that field that can help solve it. And um, I've noticed things like that in distributed systems research and distributed systems work, you know, using the ideas from, for instance, concurrent programming, like, you know, concurrent models that we've been doing for a couple of decades now, or hardware research, using those ideas in distributed systems helps solve a lot of really interesting problems uh, that would I don't think would be able to solve without it. <laughs> Super cool. Well, cross-train your brain. Excellent advice. Obviously, it's working very, very well for you. Uh, well, <laughs> thanks so much for coming on the show today. It was an utterly fascinating conversation. So nice to talk to you. Um, you know, yes, talk thanks. to a to a fellow graduate, but you know, even it's if we had gone, to, yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that because we certainly enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> even if you had gone to, you know, say Caltech, heaven forbid, um, you know, it would have been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And we would love. Well, there's to have... another school, right? The, like that starts with H and is a neighbor. <laughs> We're not even going to go there. Yeah, We're no. not going to go there. No, no, no. That's a good school too. <laughs> yeah, yeah it cool. is definitely a good school. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, so. Um, but but thanks really thanks a ton for coming on and we Thank absolutely you. It's would been love my to pleasure. have I, we would absolutely love to have you back again sometime um, Thank you. And, and talk some more that. so cool very, very yeah good. definitely it's been great talking to you thank you very much Greg you are very welcome it was our pleasure so we'll thank you one more time and thank our <laughs> listeners thanks. for listening this has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to The Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech, Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to The Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view show notes, including cover art, at our home on the web, Cognitech.com podcast. Our guest today was Isolu Greenberg on Twitter at Isolu22. That's A-Y-S-Y-L-U-2-2. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Awesome, man. That was great. Super fun. Really fun. Yeah, super good. It's good, good, good. I think it's uh, it's good. I super enjoyed it. It was really, really awesome. Super fun. Oh, I said that that was great, man. I was like, I forgot to warn you about it beforehand. And I'm like, <laughs> and that is how you live your life. Well, all right, then I guess we're done.